Bobo. Bassoon, bassoon, yes. And uh, it's just, you don't uh, hear that instrument played as a solo very often, but she does so exceptionally well, and uh, we thank the Lord for that. That was a blessing. John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I know it has taken some time for us to work through uh, this passage, what I had originally intended to be one sermon to finish this paragraph has, has turned into uh, to now three, and uh, I don't intend for it to uh, turn into four, but as a friend of mine, uh, a pastor friend of mine said, sometimes you have to cut the meatloaf off in different slices along the way, and uh, so I hope that this is much better than some of the meatloaf that I have had through the years. I hope this is good. <laughs> hope this is good meatloaf and doesn't give you indigestion. But John chapter 15, John chapter 15, what a tremendous passage. It just seems so appropriate for the time in which we live. We know that we are up against the world. We seem to be in a time, in a place that God has called us to where we are facing opposition from the world in ways that we never never thought possible. And we spent a couple of, or a couple of Sundays ago, we spent a considerable amount of time defining the world and principles regarding the world and the way the world treats Christians. I won't go back and re- rehearse all of those. But we also see in this passage in John 15, in verse number 20, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. And we looked just briefly last week at the expectation of persecution. The expectation of persecution. We will face some measure of resistance. The world hates believers because the world loved darkness rather than light. If the world hated Christ, then as servants of Christ, we can expect that there will be some measure of hate toward us if we live for the Lord. John would again state this principle in 1 John 3 and verse 13, where he said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you, our persecution, he says, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you, because our persecution, our persecution is to be expected. If the world hated Christ, and if we are reminded in even this passage as well as in 1 John 3, that we're not to be surprised, that we're not to be perplexed, by the world's hatred of us, then we have to expect some measure of resistance, animosity, antagonism toward living the godly life, toward standing up for what is right. I gave some of my experiences last week. I won't go back and share some of those. And those are are really very minimal compared to the early church. I mentioned the Fox's Book of Martyrs. I mentioned Christians who suffered under the hands of the USSR. I mentioned a few Christians that have had their businesses either taken away from them or are seriously affected or have even had their jobs taken away. They've been fired because of their stand for the truth, even right here in America. But Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, said in Matthew 5, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. We must hold firm, as I said last week, to the foundational fundamental doctrines and commands and principles of the word of God. We must Hold firm to what the Bible teaches regarding right and wrong, regarding morality and immorality. We must be firm and speak the truth in love regarding God's creative design and order for the universe and the institutions he created and and defined and designed and validated, such as marriage, the family, the church, male and female, and even human life. Again, we're not crusaders looking for persecution but we can't expect it when we live for God, as we are reminded in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So there is, first of all, this expectation of persecution. But secondly, we also need to see there's an end to the excuses for the persecutors. There's an end to the excuses for the persecutors. Let's go to verse 22 of John 15. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. This is an interesting passage, an interesting couple of verses here. He says there in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. That word cloak literally is covering or coats, but it speaks to excuses. They now have no excuse for their sin. Okay, mankind, we've, we've talked about this before, mankind already has general revelation, the testimony of creation. Psalm 19, verse number 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament showeth his handiwork. Creation declares even God's eternal power in Godhead. Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Creation reveals God. Man has that evidence already. A second aspect of general revelation that we've talked about is the conscience. Romans 2 in verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. The conscience is a general revelation, an evidence that man has to accept, that man has to respond to, that man is accountable before God for, because the conscience itself bears witness. And their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. So man has a conscience. 
I know it needs to be biblically educated. The conscience can be seared. We know that the conscience can become calloused and become hard. But nevertheless, the conscience is a general revelation, an evidence of God that leaves man without excuse. So we've seen creation. We've seen the conscience. And then, once again, we see the soul. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. Also, he has set the world in their hearts. Man is a religious being. We've seen it throughout human history. We saw it even when the football player went down with cardiac arrest and we saw people doing what? Praying. They recognize from what? From a general evidence, a general revelation that they needed to turn to a higher power. Even unsaved people, even people who not that long ago were condemning people for praying on a football field are now praying on a football field and a commentator on national television is leading the group of commentators in prayer. That speaks to this general revelation, this fact that there is a sense of a higher power. The religious aspect of man is found in the fact that man is a living soul. The soul is a general revelation. So that leaves man without excuse, creation, conscience, and the soul. But then we come to the fact that there is this special revelation, the Bible, Jesus Christ himself. And now we see these religious leaders and those who were following them in the rejection of Jesus Christ, they willingly are rejecting the testimony of Old Testament scripture and the words and the works of Christ who is there physically among them doing the miracles in their very presence. And yet they were seeking to kill him, to murder him. We read down, as we've said already, as we looked at already in verse 25, they hated me without a cause. Man has always had God's revelation. You think about God coming down in the cool mist of the garden and walking with Adam and Eve. We talk about the law and the prophets in the Old Testament We talk about the prophets, we talk about the New Testament. We spent time the last several weeks in Sunday school looking at the inspiration, the revelation, and the canonicity of Scripture and the preservation of the Word of God. Man has always had God's revelation in some form, in some measure. So there's general revelation, there's special revelation. The Word of God, Christ, who is the living Word of God. So now we see that in verse 22, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. Now, does that mean that they did not have, does that mean that they had an excuse, excuse me? Does that mean that before Christ came, they had an excuse? They They had general revelation. They had the law. They themselves were even considered experts, many of them as religious leaders, experts in the law. They should have seen Christ in the Old Testament. In the law, clearly, as Christ himself would say, that the, 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 the whole counsel of God speaks of, of him. He, he would, on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, he would talk to those disciples and, and, and explain from the scriptures the things concerning himself. They knew the Old Testament. They knew the prophecies re- regarding Christ. They knew the suffering Savior, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Yet they had rejected that. So what is the sin? 
It's the sin of rejecting the very Son of God who was in their midst, physically present, doing miracles, preaching the truth, lovingly, compassionately, drawing all men unto himself, and yet they were resistant. That is the sin. And Jesus spoke a parable regarding this in Matthew 21. We're in John 15, but let's go back to Matthew chapter 21. One of the things I love about Scripture, and that is a testimony to the Word of God, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. The Scripture is a unified whole. There's no contradictions. There's no mistakes. Paul didn't get into an argument with Peter and said, hey, I really have the word of God. Peter didn't say, oh, the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. No, we often see Old, excuse me, New Testament writers quoting from and referring to the Old Testament. The New Testament explains and interprets the Old Testament. And all of the Bible is the revealed word of God that speaks of the living word of God, Jesus Christ. So Jesus tells a parable that really helps us understand where Christ is at as he speaks in John 15 to his disciples, as we just read. And we look at Matthew chapter 21, and we go down to verse 33, where we read about the parable of the husbandmen. Here, another parable. We read in verse 33 of Matthew 21. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it around about, and digged a winepress in it, and built a tower, and let it out to husbandmen, and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen, that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants, and beat one, and killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons." Is this not what Jesus is explaining to his disciples in John 15? They have rejected every revelation, general and special. They have even killed the servants of God, the prophets. They have persecuted God's messengers. The vineyard owned by God, the Father, has leased out, in a sense, this care of the vineyard. Speaking of, in a sense, okay, specifically Israel, but we understand there's a secondary application to those who receive the truth, who the truth is declared to, and the servants are sent to claim what is rightfully the owner, God the Father's, And the servants are beaten. More servants are beaten. And so who does the owner of the vineyard send? He sends his son. Surely they'll reverence, they'll respect the son. And they do what? They kill him also. It's a parallel to what Jesus is teaching the disciples. They have 
general revelation. They have special revelation. They have been preached the truth. They have been taught the truth. They have now had the very Son of God walking in their midst. And instead of accepting and welcoming him and sharing in the blessings of the vineyard and partaking together in the fruits of salvation and the blessings of salvation and eternal life, instead, what do they do? Oh, we can have the vineyard. We can have the kingdom. We can have the world if we can just kill the owner's son, the landlord's son. And they knew when Jesus told that parable in Matthew 21 They knew who he was referring to, those religious leaders, those people of Israel who rejected the very Son of God, the Messiah, who was in their midst. That's what Jesus is speaking to. He uses the parable in Matthew 21, but he's making a reference to this rejection in the end of the excuses of the persecutors. They are without excuse. They had a tremendous privilege from God to be in the very presence of God's Son, and yet they rejected Him. This privilege was thrown away, and they would suffer the penalty for doing so. Is it not a frustration sometimes when we see young people, even adults? I can't help but think of the royal family and the dysfunction, sadly, of much of the royal family. But have we not seen and known people along the way who they've been given everything, born with a silver spoon in their mouth, never lacked anything, got basically everything they wanted. They had pretty much whatever they could get their hands on that they could get, it was given to them. And we sometimes refer to them as spoiled brats. Now, not every single one of those people who has a lot of wealth and money is a spoiled brat, but many times they are. And Jesus even says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Basically, it's impossible than for a rich man to enter the kingdom because of the deceitfulness of riches, the love of money. But we know what it's like to be around somebody who has everything, and yet they never seem happy. They always seem to be complaining. They always seem to have trouble and trial and problems, and they're just... No fun to be around. And we can see it in the news and the headlines, I think in particular of the royal family. Having everything, inheriting it all, and misery and complaining and scandal and just wickedness that just seems to constantly accompany their lives and their lifestyle. And yet they had everything that you would think that money could offer, that money could buy at their fingertips. They could have it all, and it's going to waste. And how sadly that there were people in the day of Jesus Christ here on this earth who had everything, the promises, the law, the Old Testament. They had been given the truth. They had the very Son of God in their midst. And yet Jesus said, they have no covering." For their sin any longer. All the excuses have been wiped away. First Peter 2, in verse number 8, says, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. What was a rock of their salvation had become a stone of stumbling. 
which should have been the rock of their salvation, the cornerstone upon which they built their life. They rejected the cornerstone. They rejected the stone, Jesus Christ, and now it would roll over on them and crush them. It had become a stumbling stone because they rejected Christ. May each and every one of us here today be building our lives upon Jesus Christ. May no one here this morning reject the rock of salvation. Reject the truth. We don't know. I read the headlines. It's pertinent to my mind because I have young drivers. But it can happen to any of us. We see the people around on the roads and in various places. We see death from young to old, from rich to poor. We are not guaranteed the next day. Our life is but a vapor that appears for a little time, then vanisheth away. What are we doing with what we have been given, the truth that we have been given, the blessings that we have been given? Do we, first of all, see Christ as the rock of our salvation? Have we turned to him in saving faith, repented of our sins, and placed our faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation? But having been saved, are we building our life on the word of God? Or are we taking toothpicks and trying to build a toothpick house with Elmer's glue? Because we don't want to give ourselves to commitment and to service and to sacrifice and be the living sacrifice dedicated to the Lord. As Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us to be. To be that acceptable sacrifice. To be the one proving what is that good and perfect will of God. Instead, we're content to build a sandcastle. We're, we're happy to build a paper house, a toothpick house. We've been saved, but what are we doing for the Lord? How are we living for Christ? Doesn't matter what age we are at, doesn't matter how young or how old or how rich or how poor, what our background is, we can do something in the service of the Lord. Don't reject, don't waste the opportunity and the truth and the privilege that we have been given. And we have a tremendous calling right now in this day and age. We're just having a clean mouth, showing up to work on time and doing a decent day's work can be a huge testimony. Because people are not even showing up for work. People won't even complete a basic job. We have openings all around the land where people are staying out of the workforce. We can go on and on with the examples where just simply, as we have tried to teach our, our, our children, you just go to work, put a smile on your face, do your job, be there on time, do a good job, listen, follow your instructions, and do the best you can Fulfill your job completely, and it's amazing the testimony that you will have. You don't cuss. You don't have the vulgarity. You, you, you talk decent. You act decent. You live a decent life, and people begin to notice. And it's not that we're doing casual Christianity or customer service Christianity, but I'm saying that just the basic things, the old school type of mentality of going to work and doing your job and having a, a decent uh, way of, of living, how much it stands out in our culture today. 
There are some places we go where just the fact that we have a normal color of hair makes us stand out. Just that we dress masculine as a man and we dress feminine as a girl, as a woman, makes us stand out. Just the fact that we don't have things, vapors and smoke and various things emanating from our mouth all the time. The fact that we're not boozing it up. Even just basic things. People notice all the time. They notice you leave for church every Sunday morning. You go back to church. They see the way you conduct yourself. They know there's something different. We've been given the truth. We have a stewardship. We're to be faithful in that. The excuses had come to an end for the persecutors. They had rejected. They had despised the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. They had rejected the goodness of God that was leading them to repentance, but they despised it. They suppressed the truth, and their excuses had come to an end. 2 Peter 3 and verse number 5 describes the unsaved who have willingly rejected the gospel, willingly rejected the truth. We read in 2 Peter 3 and verse number 5, For this they willingly are ignorant of. Romans 1 and verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Don't be a suppressor of the truth. And as a saved individual, live out the truth. Take full advantage of the privileges and the awesome responsibility of serving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with all of our being. And to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we've seen the expectation of persecution. We've seen the end of the excuses of the persecutors. But thirdly, also we see the enduring help of the Holy Spirit. Let's drop down to verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. Jesus, again, is reminding the disciples. They've left the upper room. They've left the Lord's Supper, possibly at the end of that time together, as they have been observing the Passover. It's quite possible they are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, or they have come to the Garden, and Jesus is giving them this discourse, this sermon. He knows what they are about to face. In a matter of hours, Christ would be taken to the cross. The disciples would scatter. Peter would deny Christ three times. He knew that he would rise from the dead three days later and he would spend 40 days in the post-resurrection time on earth before he would ascend up into glory. He knew that the disciples would then be the ones to take forth his name into a cruel, wicked world. And he's preparing them for it. And he says the comforter will come. We also are to bear witness And we have the Holy Spirit. We have the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. The comforter is the Holy Spirit. He is God. He is a person. The Holy Spirit is not an emotion. The Holy Spirit is not some presence, mystical presence. The Holy Spirit is not some out-of-body experience, some transcendental state of mind. It's not that we have to go into some sort of 
meditation and free our minds of all that inhibits it and then the Holy Spirit can work? No. That is New Age Spiritism. That is mumbo-jumbo, whatever you want to call it. It's nonsense. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. Christ is saying that there is the enduring help of the Holy Spirit as you face the persecution, as you face the resistance. I am going to send the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth, verse 26. He proceeds from the Father. We see the deity of the Holy Spirit. He proceeds from the Father. And he shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit points us to the truth, points us to Jesus Christ. And he has, as the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and we see throughout the book of Acts, the giving of the Holy Spirit, we understand that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is God placing us through the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. And the waters of baptism only picture the death, the burial, and the resurrection. There is a spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit placing us, obviously by the work of God, as the Holy Spirit is God, placing us in Christ. So now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And we need the Holy Spirit in this day of persecution. And we have that comforter, that one who comes alongside, that paraclete, who encourages us as believers to live faithfully, to live right, to live holy in this very dark world. At times we seem overwhelmed by all the evil and the opposition to the work of God. But again, we are on God's side, and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, 1 John 4, in verse number 4 says. So the Holy Spirit witnesses of the Father through the word of God and through his indwelling presence, which brings comfort, which brings assurance within our hearts during times of persecution, during times of resistance, when we have to take a stand for what is right. And 1 Peter chapter number 4 reminds us of this ministry of the Holy Spirit during times of persecution and resistance. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Again, the expectation of persecution, not that we go after it, not that we look for it, not that we are a crusader trying to stir it up, but it is going to come in some way, shape, or form. He says, don't think it's some strange thing that has happened unto you, but rejoice, 1 Peter 4 and verse 13. It sounds very similar to Matthew 5 and verses 10 through 12. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Those are hard words. That is a hard truth to live out. You mean in times of persecution? You mean in times of resistance and animosity and antagonism toward the truth, toward the word of God, that we can rejoice and we can be glad with exceeding joy? That's what Peter says by the inspiration of God. That's the inspired word of God telling us that there can be joy in the midst of persecution because we have the help of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on in verse 14 of 1 Peter 4. He says, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. 
For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. Let me say that again. Let me read that again from 1 Peter 4. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. That's the Holy Spirit during the time of persecution. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. That doesn't mean that when persecution comes that we throw a big party. Hey, everybody, come over to the persecution party. We're going to have cake and we're going to have ice cream. We're going to have confetti. Is that what he's talking about? No, he's talking about an internal sense of joy, of peace, knowing that God is in control, that God is doing a work, and that in the resistance, in the persecution, we can have a testimony for the Lord. We can bring glory to God. We can bring joy in the midst of a time of suffering and sorrow. We never know, again, how people perceive us, how, who is watching Little ears, little eyes. As parents, we have children who see how we respond. They know. They pick up. More is caught than taught. We teach, but they also catch. They catch a lot. And how we respond in those times of persecution and resistance speaks volumes. We have an opportunity to glorify the Lord with the enduring help of the Holy Spirit. Three final points as we bring this message to an end. Three final points about persecution that I want to draw to our attention this morning. First of all, there is eternal value. There is eternal value in suffering for Christ. Mark 10, in verses 29 through 31, we read this as our scripture reading earlier. I want us to draw our attention to this passage once again. Because it helps us to understand the value of the eternal value that comes in times of persecution. It helps us. It's part of the enduring help of the Holy Spirit. As we see these principles in our times of persecution, it helps us to see a measure of what God is doing through our persecution. Mark 10, verse 29, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sister, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. That's an important principle about humility, about not always seeking to be first and always having to win the argument and always having to bully and to be the number one, the head honcho, the alpha male or whatever. It's not just speaking of that, it's speaking of the eternal value that comes in suffering for Christ. He speaks here of an hundredfold Does that mean that if we are persecuted that God's going to buy us a mansion and we're going to live in a five-bedroom, five-bathroom mansion with a lake for bass fishing in the back? Is that what he's saying? He's using this colloquialism, he's using this phrase to speak to the eternal value. There is a blessing and a joy and a satisfaction and a gladness in suffering for Christ that we experience right now. But there is an eternal value. He says that in Mark 10 here at the end of verse 30. And in the world to come eternal life. 
and there is privilege and responsibility and blessing and reward that comes in heaven for having suffered for Christ's name and a crown of glory that we will cast at his feet in worship and in praise of him. So there is value, eternal value, in suffering for Christ. We already looked at Matthew 5 and verse number 12, but this speaks of, verse 12 of Matthew 5 speaks of this as well. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So there is eternal value in suffering for Christ. Secondly, we can take pleasure in persecution. We can take pleasure in persecution. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. We know this passage well. We often quote it. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. We understand the context. Paul wanted the thorn in the flesh to be taken away. He prayed three times for that thorn in the flesh to be removed. God chose not to. Paul accepted that. He understood to some degree the purpose and the humility that he needed and the dependence upon God and his strength being made perfect or God's strength and his strength through, God, through Christ being made perfect in his weakness. But notice what he says in 2 Corinthians 12, the end of verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Do we not need the sufficient grace of God when there is persecution? Sure we do. Were the apostles not going to experience persecution and have to rely upon the sufficient grace of God? Yes, Paul himself as an apostle Faced it regularly. And he says, I take pleasure in infirmities. He takes pleasure in these persecutions, in these distresses for Christ's sake. Again, I go back to Matthew 5. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. We see the apostles in Acts 5 and verse 41. And they departed from the presence of the council. The council had beaten them and told them, don't preach the gospel anymore. And the apostles walked away in Acts 5 and verse 41, and they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Too many Christians are compromising, won't stand up for what is right, give in to the world, capitulate, let the world shape them into the world's mold. When we're not to be conformed to this world, knowing that that nonconformity to the world's mold might bring some distress, some persecution for Christ, for his name. But we can rejoice and be exceeding glad. We can count it worthy to suffer shame for his name, knowing there is reward in heaven and there is blessing and honor even now. So we've seen already In these closing points, there is eternal value in suffering for Christ. We can take pleasure in persecution for Christ. But thirdly, we identify with Christ when we suffer persecution. We identify with him. No one suffered 
more for holiness and righteousness than Jesus Christ. He suffered immeasurably as the sinless Son of God, as the God-man. He suffered immeasurably beyond what we can possibly imagine. And he did so for you and me. He suffered intense persecution, hatred, and death for us to pay the penalty for our sins. And God raised him up into glory. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When we suffer persecution, we identify with Christ. Romans 8 and verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. We read in Philippians 1 and verse 29, For unto you it is given, in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. We identify with Christ when we suffer persecution. For doing what is right, for standing up for Jesus Christ, for not just following the crowd, but doing what is right, saying no, as we talked about yesterday in the men's Bible study. One of the principles, one of those ten principles that we talked about was just say no. If sinners entice thee, consent thou not. There can be persecution in that. There can be resistance in that. But there is far greater joy to suffer a little bit of shame, to suffer a little bit of pain and loss on this side of heaven for Christ. Instead, we are to rejoice and be exceeding glad because we are identifying even with Christ when we suffer persecution. There is eternal value in suffering for Christ. We can take pleasure in persecution. We can identify with Christ when we suffer persecution. We don't pursue it. We don't crusade for it. We avoid it when we can. Even in Matthew 10, when Christ sent out his apostles and he sent out his 70, he didn't say to look for persecution. He didn't say to crusade for it. He said, if they reject you in one city, go on to the next. And if they reject the gospel, he talked about wiping the, the dust of their feet off and then going on to the next city. And Paul example, exemplified that as he went from city to city to city preaching the gospel until finally he was thrown in a Roman dungeon and was beheaded for Christ, from what we understand from tradition. Every disciple, every apostle, as far as we know, or most if not all of them, eventually were martyred for Christ. But we also are called to be witnesses to suffer some measure of persecution. I don't know if we'll ever experience that level of persecution that the early church experienced, that the apostles experienced. We don't pursue it. We don't crusade for it. We avoid it when we can. But when it is unavoidable, we trust the outcome to God. We rejoice and be exceeding glad. We trust God with it, knowing that he has a plan, that he has a purpose. And that he is working out his will and we can be a testimony and we can have an opportunity and a privilege to shine the light of the gospel in ways that maybe the gospel would never have gone forth or to people who never would have listened. If Paul had not 
gone to Jerusalem and obeyed the will of God, he would not have had the opportunity to witness to all of those Roman governors and councils and principles on his way to Rome, nor would he have had to win people to Christ in Rome, even Roman centurions who were chained to him, who had to hear the gospel day in and day out, probably wondering who gets the next shift to be chained to Paul. And Paul was even witnessing down to his dying day. We'll look, and Lord willing, next week in our Sunday school series on Bible basics for discipleship, we'll look at men who died for the name of Christ simply because they wanted to translate God's word into the English language so that the common man could hear it. They went to their deaths, burned. One of them even had his bones dug up 43 years later by the Catholic Church, and they burned his bones and threw his ashes into the river. They hated him so badly, simply because he wanted to translate the Bible into the English language. So many more examples. May we be an example, even right now, in the place that God has called us to. Knowing persecution may come, but we can rejoice and be exceeding glad, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you, Lord, as hard as they can be to swallow, to accept. Lord, we don't desire persecution. We don't want it to come. But, Lord, if it does come in your will, in your time, in your plan, or even in the small measure that we experience it, Lord, may we continue to stand for what is right, to continue to be faithful, to rejoice and be exceeding glad, to be happy to suffer for your name. May we not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Lord, if there's someone here who does not know you as their Savior, who is not building their life upon the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ, Lord, may today be the day in which they repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ. Lord, help us as believers to go out from here to serve you better, to love you more, to share the gospel as you give us opportunity, and to look for those divine appointments that we might see others come to saving faith and join us in glory one day in Jesus' name.